0: Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my wisdom publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. SAD is actually a disorder, and it's, the symptoms are very similar to run-of-the-mill monopolar depression in that there are challenges in sustaining concentration and attention, low energy, disinterest in previously enjoyed activities, that's known clinically as anhedonia, craving carbohydrates, overeating, withdrawal from socializing, hypersomnia, which means essentially sleeping a lot, pessimism. Sad is cyclical, and generally it's seen on a seasonal basis, and there are risk factors for it. A history of depression, of course, people who live far from the equator, go figure, uh, family history and um, interestingly enough women are four times more likely to be diagnosed with sad. although it's not clear if there's any genetic predisposition for that or if there are sociocultural factors that lead simply to that diagnosis there is actually a partially biological component to it. There's a part of your brain, your hypothalamus, and in the hypothalamus there's a tiny little region. I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's too long a name, nobody will remember it, but the acronym for it is SCN, and it's your inner clock. Your brain has a rudimentary my brain everybody's brain has a rudimentary clock and this clock is actually located right next to an area where your optic nerves cross and that allows us to have binocular vision we don't see two separate fields we actually integrate the two the stimuli coming from two optic nerves, and the way we can do that is because they cross, and at that very point all the information is integrated, creating a single image of the world around us, and at that very location is this clock. Why is our inner clock right on top of the very epicenter of where the optic nerves cross? Well, it's because your inner clock determines the ebb and flow of neurotransmitters and hormones in your body depending upon how much light there is outside. And it looks for certain wavelengths, so simply being in this room right now is not tricking that part of the brain because there's not enough blue light coming at us to actually tell the brain that it's daylight. It essentially sets so much of our life. It's the sleep-wake cycles, the amount of energy, alertness, the hunger, the amount of hunger we have, digestion. Even our immune systems are set by this clock. If you have an accident in daytime, the wound will heal faster because you're actually producing more red blood cells. Most importantly, in terms of SAD, This clock, depending upon how much daylight determines the amount of serotonin that you have. With the diminishment of uh, daylight, our moods are susceptible to plummet. Serotonin is one of the key neurotransmitters. Dopamine largely reward, motivation, goal-seeking... Serotonin is the relax, I'm at home, I'm comfortable, I'm with my friends, I can settle in, that feeling, and it's largely buoyant. So with the dipping of serotonin, what happens this time of year is our serotonin gets flushed out of the synapses very, very fast. Melatonin, which is an important role of like the fact that there's more melatonin this time of year. People who suffer disproportionate depression during this time of year, their circadian rhythms, that clock, gets out of sync with the actual time of day. The morning light comes on earlier, and so, it, to use a technical term, it fucks with the rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> And when I say that, you know that I was, when I was reading these clinical papers at this point, I sort of glazed over because the phase shift hypothesis of SAD was a little bit above my uh, understanding. But essentially, the part I was able to digest is that due to the early morning light, the diminishment of daylight, that the internal clock gets out of whack out of phase with the actual time of day. And so with it, it further diminishes the amount of serotonin and it switches the thalamus into a hypothalamus state where we have less energy, less motivation, we feel more sluggish, it's more difficult to essentially even move due to the the state. Now The big question is, is SAD actually really a pathological diagnosis or is it something that represents an entirely natural human rhythm? In other words, is SAD a disorder or is it a naturally embedded part of our species? all species hibernate, all mammals hibernate and due to the fluctuation of food gathering it's built in over the course of our evolution that this time of year there's a diminishment of motivation, a diminishment of energy, a diminishment of focused attention which is resulting from dopamine, there's a diminishment of energy and alert levels, because for the vast bulk of our history as a species, this time of year we weren't doing jack shit we weren't We were essentially spending these months in I gather the hearth <laughs> that's a word I read, but never actually say out loud so I'm we were essentially back, huddling together, passing this time where, assumedly, if we were in villages, the food had been stocked, the all of the gathering of supplies had been done, and there was no more work. There was nothing more we could do for a number of months other than simply survive. Today, there's an evolutionary discrepancy in our species between what has been baked into our brains for the bulk of millennia, I mean millions of years of evolution have led to brains that expect for a certain portion of the year to not be doing anything to just be watching I don't know what crap show that we watch on Netflix Any. Whatever. <laughs> you know, we are I mean, for me, it's True Detective. I, I, all I'm meant to do... <laughs> I'm not meant to be here. I'm meant to be at home watching <laughs> True Detective. <laughs> it's clearly not an evolutionary build-up that some weird, you're supposed to be trudging out into the rain listening to some weird-looking... Buddhist guy neurotically talking about neuropsychology. So, we're all doing something that's not in our evolutionary programming. So, there's a discrepancy. The conditions between what was uh, certainly the bulk of human history, we spent hunter gatherer collectives where there was an entire cyclical pattern of each year. And suddenly, in the last 2,000 years, out of 200,000 years of human, our species existed, suddenly, in the blink of the eye, we have food, sto- grain storage, food supplies, we have cities, we, which means, and with the cities and with the patriarchal capitalist society we live in, we now expect ourselves to essentially be able to have the same amount of motivation and endeavor and um, energy, productivity, availability, health throughout the course of the year and it's entirely not natural it's entirely unrealistic given what has been the entire course of evolution that's led to our brains our disconnection from nature and the natural rhythms that come with living in nature means we try to adhere to calendars that are not realistic for our biophysio our psychobiological constructs but still, because we're so deeply embedded in this uh, you know, capitalist productivity mindset where there's this ongoing expectation that we should be uh, essentially performing at the same level month in, month out leads to so much pathologizing and so much feelings that we're somehow failing and I my work largely is in counseling that's the vast majority of what I do and I meet with so many people who come in and are caught up in beating themselves up this time of year because they feel this almost this sense of shame Simply due to the fact that it's very difficult to accomplish as much or to get work or get new projects or produce what they're expected to produce at work and so a lot of a lot of uh, the reason I decided to give this one talk this evening was because I hear this uh, self-pathologizing so constantly in the winter and I don't think that people are really aware just how um, we're actually in many ways programmed to not get anything done we're actually programmed to rest and restore and in some way recharge, replenish for an upcoming new year. To expect ourselves not to be doing that is to expect our species suddenly to be divorced from all of the evolutionary history that has produced mammalian and primate behavior. There's actually a significant risk in trying to override these natural cycles that are built in to our not only to our brains, but, you know, as the key regions that govern hormonal uh, secretions that determine our level of energy and capabilities. When we disrupt it, when we try to maintain this even uh, active, engaged, ongoingly available and energetic level throughout the year, there's now some interesting research that suggests that uh, it leads to increased over the long term risk of heart attack and stroke and even neurodegenerative diseases. There was a paper called, I, I checked out, Circadian Rhythm Disruption in Psychiatric and Neurodegenerative Diseases. And they show that people who literally try to override their natural settings actually incur greater risk of these you know significant diseases recognizing that winter is part of you know this natural cycle that we are our species is actually is part and parcel of who we are we can. We have an opportunity to embrace and allow ourselves to connect with this sense of that we don't always have to have this level of productivity or achievement or ongoing uh, drive. We can actually learn to embrace, and that plays such a valuable role over the course of our lives because if we can learn to relax into having times of the year where we cannot literally be as engaged and active and alert and energetic, it prepares us for what, let's face it, is going to be happening over the course of our lives, inevitably. There was a study by a woman, Carrie Leibowitz of Stanford, and she went to Norway and did a study of how people in that country combat SAD, seasonal affective disorder. And uh, it's kind of interesting. She started out in southern Norway. I don't think there really is such a thing as southern Norway. There's just like (laughs) extreme Norway and then ridiculously you know. So she started out uh, down in Oslo And she found that the amount in the South, the amount of people that had seasonal affective disorder and were distressed by winter was far more prevalent than when she went up to this little area called Tromso. And Tromso is like one of the darkest places on Earth. There is long periods where there is no sunlight. Or if there is sunlight, it's like a half an hour a day. So that's just plain ridiculous and but she went up there and people there didn't have sad they didn't actually um they didn't actually suffer during these months of absolute day of uh, nighttime. and the reason she found was uh, twofold one of which was that um the further north she went the more people embraced Winter as a natural time to not try to engage in the normal workflow that they were developing through the rest of their lives. They actually embraced it as a time of year where you connect, where you develop and and deepen into relationships, where you embrace the season, where you turn towards things that are appropriate for this time of year. She also found, and this is really essential, in our, in our culture we might understand that this time of year is natural to hibernate, but what is not baked into our evolutionary history, which we try to do now, is we try to spend these darker months very often in far greater degrees of isolation than our forerunners. The vast bulk of our history, in fact, I would go as far as say 99% of human history, because if you looked at 2,000 years out of 200,000, is roughly 99%, was spent in hunter gatherer collectives where you would, this time of year, be sitting around, I would assume, some kind of fire draped in. I would guess, fur is not a very good look, but whatever. (laughs) And would basically be spending the time talking and connecting and building relationships so that the rest of the year when we went out and tried to collect food and resources, we knew we had good bonds to return to. She found that's what people in Tromso did. They had built into the, the winter months calendar all these Times throughout not only the month, but even throughout the day, where people would go out and meet and connect. And that, and that's the key, because that raises your serotonin levels. So this time of year when the serotonin is flushed out due to the cert protein and the synapses, what buoys us, what keeps us from falling into despair, is the interpersonal connection that is expected to be there. That's why for so many millennia there's no mention of this sad. But then suddenly, given our increasingly isolated lifestyles where we might return home to either small studio apartments, if you're really lucky, or more likely, you live with a roommate you don't really know. They're kind of there, and you kind of nod and smile and and but you don't really know or have a lot of connection very often. I don't know why I say you. I mean, it's not you. It's just whatever one. We're <laughs> saying one, but anyway. So we don't boy, we don't counteract the dipping of moods through um, our connection with each other. So, uh, it is important, I think, though, to, one, refuse to pathologize ourselves this time of year. If you are feeling a disproportionate amount of uh... dysregulated mood plummeting there are things we can do and i'll talk about them in a moment Uh, i should note that buddhists for thousands of years have spent this time of year in what's called rains retreats or vasa and they did exactly what they do is exactly in line with what the people in norway do they go on a retreat, but it's not a silent retreat. It's a retreat where you stop working, and the nuns and monks would return to their monastery and connect <coughs> with others. And people, Buddhists who go on the rains retreat, <coughs> spend a lot of the day trying to practice right speech, connecting with people, forging relationships. Many, some hours in meditation, contemplating their life. But there was an expect, there's an expectation built in in Vasa that it's not the time to work or try to hold ourselves to these ideals of achievement and accomplishment. So in addition to embracing this time of year some psychologists talk about lighting candles and uh, setting up you know blankets and uh, setting aside time to have longer periods of connection with friends. Um, there are things we can do just to directly. If you do feel that it's affecting you abnormally, of course, the first and the probably the easiest fix is to simply get a full spectrum light, because that little clock we talked about in your brain, if you flash a, a full spectrum light for 30 minutes in the morning, it will reset your clock in your brain and the diminishment of mood, this sort of mood plummets, largely studies show will be alleviated. Now that doesn't mean that you'll want to just get up and run to the gym every day and, and you know, get that new job and, and all that stuff, but the abnormal diminishment of mood will be um, lessened and of course the other thing that is very available uh, is you can raise your serotonin levels as well by simply consuming 5-HTP which is a safe supplement that is similar to L-tryptophan it's sustainably resourced L-tryptophan is largely itself uh, consumed through turkey, but I don't eat that stuff. But most of the 5-HTP you get in any store will be made from seeds. So you're not killing any beings. And what it does is it's a building block that your brain uses to synthesize serotonin. So it helps make up the reduction in mood uh, plummeting, or essentially the lack of serotonin. But finally, also, This time of year, very often the emotional wounds that we've accumulated over the course of the previous year tend to catch up as we wind up spending very often less time outdoors, less vitamin D, less connection, (coughs) less uh, distractions. So very often, uh, if we don't just busy ourselves with suppressing the emotions that start to rise up, we can uh, find that the, old, the emotional wounds of abandonments, losses, disappointments, frustrations that we've been successfully distracting ourselves from, essentially suppressing and repressing, suppressing, pushing down, repressing, keeping unconscious. Uh, over the course of the year, begin to return because things that are repressed don't want to stay down. Emotional pain is essentially, emotional. emotions are survival inclinations and when these impulses are repressed, to feel sad, to feel angry, to feel grief, to feel boredom, to feel loneliness, Whatever emotion that we've been running from over the course of the year and successfully repressing through just staying busy, running around, looking at our phones, not checking in with our bodies, eventually they catch up. Emotional survival impulses, which are what emotions... Emotions are survival impulses. Every emotion is a message telling us we need to change something in our life eventually those messages will seek to return and the more we run from them the more they become dysregulated which means they become more difficult to hold feel and observe moods are messages and so on top of the natural diminishment of our mood regulation due to the dipping of serotonin. On top of that, we're very susceptible this time of year to start to feel the wounds of relationships that haven't worked out, jobs that didn't turn out well, projects, creative projects that had unsatisfactory, disappointing conclusions, lack of connection with friends or disappointments and attachment figures family, dramas, all that which we've been running from 10 to return. So this is a time of year where it's especially worthwhile to learn how to process these important messages because if we can what all emotions seek at their heart is simply to be felt, which means experienced in the body, and then to be Disclose to someone who's safe, so that we can have our emotions naturalized. We naturalize our emotions, we get a sense that they're not, there's not something wrong with us by simply sharing our feelings with others. And then finally, to learn how to take adaptive actions on behest of our emotions. So for example, if we're constantly feeling angry, it means that we're not setting good boundaries in our interpersonal relationships if we're constantly feeling a sense of grief it means we haven't processed losses and adapted and allowed ourselves to to essentially mourn disappointing interpersonal events if we feel a sense of loneliness obviously it's an emotion it's a deeply embedded emotional impulse to connect to push ourselves to get ourselves out of our fear of disclosing and connecting with others. So tonight's meditation is going to be a Buddhist practice, is all the meditations and all the tools I generally tend to offer Buddhist. And this is going to be called the RAIN meditation, and it's a meditation that was developed by two women I deeply admire, Michelle McDonald and Tara Brock, to uh, American Buddhist, Tara Brach, is a psychologist as well. And RAIN Meditation is developed by them to uh, essentially... I think it was first developed by Michelle McDonald and then Tara Brach uh, took it and refined it. And the basic idea is to develop a way to process our feelings. And I think it's a really wonderful practice to put into place this time of year so that we can use these longer night and evenings and darker hours at times not just to, uh, to drink soup and watch True Detective, but also to have a practice that will allow us to process some of the... Feelings that we've been essentially running from so that we become emotionally up-to-date. We can learn from the emotions as well. That's what their job is, to help steer us. And they can't steer us to adaptive actions if we've been suppressing them. So RAIN stands for recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. In this practice, what we do first is we... Recognize what feeling or emotion is present in the practice and we're going to encourage ourselves in the practice to feel something that has been lurking and waiting for our attention. So recognizing simply means finding the emotion in your body because this is an embodied practice. Emotions are primarily physiological They have attentional qualities, but they're largely embodied. So finding, like, is it in the chest, a tight chest, or contracted belly, or is it in this feeling of heaviness behind the eyes, or is it in this sense of energy flowing up, this excited or this sense of, of hypervigilance? What is the feeling in the body? Finding it, and if possible, giving it a label. If you understand what the quality or kind or type of emotion it is, just note okay i'm feeling I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling frustrated very often in meditation that's a big one. I can't sit still, fuck this I'm frustrated. that's a perfectly reasonable emotion. The a stands for allow, which means allow the emotion to to flow and move, don't contract against it. The more we resist these feelings that have been building up, the more dysregulated they become, and then we, instead of learning from them, we vent them. We try to expunge our anger onto other people, or we turn the anger into really uh, uh, distorted thoughts. Sadness turns into, I can't do anything, Nobody likes me. I'm gonna wind up alone. Anger turns into fuck everybody. I'm not gonna even try to have friends anymore. <laughs> so we don't want that. So we want to prevent the the these emotions from transporting, transforming themselves into uh, sort of deflected stories, cognitive stories of the left hemisphere. We wanna feel them and process them. So, allow means don't contract against it. Allow the, encourage the feeling to move through the body. I means investigate. Learn what it's, find the breath of being angry or sad or bored or frustrated or lonely or tired or excited or whatever. Just find what the breath is like. Find what the the body is like. What is the mind state like? Get to know it don't don't the more we understand and can be with these feelings, the less they take control of us and the more we can integrate their messages into our life and finally nurture which means self soothe while we're feeling what we need to feel so self soothing can be adding a very soft uh, Uh, a gentle, sort of tender message in our mind, an image of someone who creates a sense of safety or a place, relaxing, softening the breath, extending the out-breaths, anything that will create a soft, fine way to be with what we need to feel. So that's tonight's talk. Hope there was something worthwhile in it. And now we're going to actually do a RAIN practice Process emotions skillfully. <coughs> Hold, observe, be with, understand. Just find a really comfortable position. Allow your body, as you close your eyes, just take a moment to allow your body to wobble from left, right, front, back, like your top and then without any intervention by your thinking mind, which might have an image of the way you should sit, just allow your body in and of itself to come to a stop, just allow whatever feels natural to your body, let your body determine what's a good way to sit and then just gently tilt your head a little bit up, like by lifting your chin just a little bit. Like you're looking at a tall building a few blocks away. So just tilting the head back a little bit prevents us from slouching in front, our head slouching in front of our chest. And that's really useful because it's when we slouch that the practice becomes so much more difficult. So let's take a few breaths just to settle in and reset our nervous system to the state of rest and digest, the settings associated with the higher vagal nerve cluster which steadies our heartbeat, lowers our blood pressure, allows us to digest our food, allows us to connect with others. So for the first of three breaths, just take a full complete in-breath and while you're breathing in, lift your shoulders up as high as you can and then as you breathe out slowly through your mouth, slowly lower and rotate back your shoulders to open up your chest if that's available so that you're creating this sort of big superhero type chest with your shoulders pulled back slightly, it opens up so much room for the breath and just that actually tends to engage the vagal break, which starts to lower the heart rate and then the second breath and push in or push out, pull in or push out your belly, whichever feels like you want to do, there's no right way, just push it in or pull it in or push it out. And then as you breathe out softly just soften the muscles in your abdomen allowing the belly to be as pliant and relaxed when we're in alert threatened stage the abdomen is generally very very tight and contracted due to the protective tendencies, and it cuts off digestion. So when you soften the abdomen, you lengthen the out and you open the chest, you're sending messages up to the core of the amygdala, saying, and the insula, which checks your body, and you're saying, I'm okay, um, I can relax. And for the third full in-breath, squishing the muscles of the face really tight, locking the jaw, throwing the brow, everything tight, and then breathe out. And just soften those micro-muscles around the eyes and smooth out, use your awareness to smooth out your forehead, just softening and then allowing your jaw to hang comfortably if you want it to hang really comfortably you can rest the tongue on the base of the mouth behind the lower teeth but if you want to keep your jaw close together just place the tongue against the roof of the mouth but don't Clench your teeth. And again, whatever feels right for you, there's no. It's whatever feels appropriate in your body. And then we're just going to spend some time just settling the mind. And the way we do this is by finding an area in the body where you can observe yourself breathing in and breathing out you don't really have to become so acutely aware of the quality of the breath whether it's cut off or open and easy just know when you're breathing in and know when you're breathing out that's all the buddha's instructions were just knowing when we're breathing in knowing when we're breathing out knowing if a breath is long or short so some people place their attention on the tip of the nose just feeling the air coming in and going out there Some people like to, I like to place my awareness on the base of my belly and just follow the energy moving up to the chest as I breathe in and then relaxing and softening as I exhale. So there's this movement up from the abdomen to the sternum and then back down on the exhalation. Some people like to place their awareness on the, chest itself, feeling the expansion of the ribcage, contraction of the diaphragm or whatever works. It could be your shoulders. And just at the beginning you can either think in while you're breathing in. Drawing out the word in your mind, in. Then as you breathe that out. Then on the pause, just think pause. So there's this ongoing awareness of what's happening, what's keeping you alive. Paying attention to the breath has been shown so many clinical studies over and over again to have numerous health benefits and cognitive benefits and it reduces stress significantly so it's of so many benefits and try to allow the outbreath to be as long as it can without it being unnatural, but the longer the out breath, the more your heart rate will drop, your blood pressure will drop, the circulation, you're telling yourself you're safe and it's time to reduce all that mobilization state in the body. It's really difficult to keep your attention on your breath. Just count one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out. And when you get to five on the in breath, then on the next out breath, think four, then three on the next in, then two on the next out breath. So you're counting from one to five and back down, odd numbers on the in breath. And lastly, a couple notes. If paying attention to the breath is uncomfortable for you, no worries, just listen to the sounds that are occurring around you, like it's a recording of a distant environment and the sounds, you have no idea what is creating them. So don't visualize anything, just hear, sound of the rain, distant car horns and traffic. Just allow yourself to be present with all the actual sensations that are surrounding you. And what will happen sooner or later is the brain will abandon all these sensations and try to create stories about what's going to happen in the future or mull over unresolved issues. Literally a circuit in the brain is responsible for that. And what we want to do is simply just be aware of when we've abandoned the breath or the sounds and... Just no judgment, no criticism, no frustration. Just allow the, yourself to feel good that you've noticed when you have slipped away and just relax your body because whenever we drift away from the present, something tightens. So, all we need to do is just relax back into this time, this moment, this present. Just soften and relax into the world around us, the feelings. There's so much to be gained in how we respond each time we drift away. Just practicing being gentle and caring with ourselves is so transformative in and of itself so there's no sign of there's no sense that if we have a jumpy mind that it doesn't mean that we're not practicing it just means there's more opportunities to learn how to treat ourselves well. So at this point, moving into the RAIN practice, we can go into this in two manners. One, simply asking ourselves, what do I need to feel right now? if you think there's this undercurrent just sincerely dropping the question what do i really need to feel or what needs my attention or we could bring to mind some emotionally resonant event from the past year that we have a sense that still needs our care and just don't repeat the story of what happened don't turn it into an inner narrative just hold an image or something that represents the event that you need to process and whether or not you're asking what do I need to feel or you're bringing up a specific experience then bring your attention to your body see if you can find some area some heaviness maybe in the chest or tightness in the belly or a proverbial lump in the throat, or a heaviness behind the eyes, or a, a feeling of a, a surge of some strong, resonant energy flowing either up or down the body. Find some somatic manifestation of this emotion and just bring your attention to it and recognize it. Recognize what is present in your body. If nothing comes up, then bring another image to mind or given how important connections are to our species, think of a interpersonal event that needs our contemplation. And just allow yourself to find anything that is calling out for your awareness, very often subtle, but find that feeling of tightness or heaviness or contraction or queasiness or heat or cold. If there's a sense of what the emotion is you can label it If not just move on to allowing which means removing any resistance to it and allow it to fully present itself, even if it's disconcerting, hold the door open of awareness and acceptance and just allow this feeling you've located to arise in whatever shape it needs to materialize Sadness might move up from the chest to the throat to the sense of weight or behind the eyes uh, darkening of the mind or there might be a sense of joy that needs to spread up and light up the mind and bring energy up from the body through this energetic breathing and vitality whatever needs to express itself just allow it and you can Just encourage it, welcome any feeling, welcome any state. Be with whatever needs to be felt. And once it's there, you can see if there's any word that describes the feeling again, is this worry, doubt, is this frustration or boredom is this calm or some kind of shutdown whatever see if there's a word that captures what you're feeling just turning a feeling into a word that captures it is so Important, because it then can be used to communicate the feeling to others. We can feel really known. Investigating... What it's like throughout the body being in this state, what is the breath like? Does this feeling need me to act or does it simply want me to heal? Does it want me to run from something or run towards something? What is the inclination that this feeling is trying to convey? What does it what is its wisdom? For the last part of this practice, just hold up an image of yourself that represents some period of your life where you needed care, love, attention, support. It could be from childhood, or yesterday, or today. Just bring up an image that represents the most vulnerable, authentic image of yourself at your most unguarded, and just repeat the phrase, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. going. I love you, keep going, just nurturing that part of ourself that is so deserving of care. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl and just take your time in the transition. Try to bring this embodied awareness with you into the rest of your evening. So you're balancing external awareness with this sense of honoring whatever needs to be felt.